it's the Pittsburgh Oddcast. Welcome everybody back to the Pittsburgh Oddcast. My name is Andrew Lindbergh. I'm the producer of the program. And with me as always is Mr. John Chalkowski. Hello. So today I decided to have a special guest on with us. And it's her name is Gloria Feruzen. And uh, in my opinion, is the expert at Pittsburgh female history. Whether that's dealing with everything from the very beginning uh, all the way to the suffrage movement, which we'll talk about, to um, just looking at I mean, she's just fascinated. She's just a fan of history, really, when it comes down to it. And um, I first met you, Gloria, back in, uh, I think, 2016 now, when there was the Bicentennial was going on the, the, for the city of Pittsburgh. Uh, I saw this kind of post out there saying, you know, we need help finding some genealogy information. And I'm like, whoa, you know. I, I need to get involved in that somehow because I'm obsessed with genealogy. As we know, most history is um, you know, written by a white man um, about white men things. <laughs> and uh, unless you did something fantastical or, um, of, or were a murderous or committed some crime, you, you really wouldn't read uh, too much about female history other than you were Mrs. Smith. Uh, you didn't even have a first name. Uh, and most of these old history books. And it's the exact reason why I wanted to bring Gloria on, because uh, she's such a wealth of knowledge of, of these n- formerly nameless figures who are, you know, they, the story goes, behind every great man, right, is a great and better woman. <laughs> and uh, and there's no better, the same thing goes for Odd Pittsburgh, uh, that if I needed some kind of information, I need to find out something about a female history, or if I'm doing something wrong, She's going to let me know, <laughs> and she's going to say, hey, do not forget to mention uh, you know, this woman, and, 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 and I need that, and we all need that, and, and which is one of the best reasons why uh, I'm happy to get her on the show. So, uh, Gloria, I, I'm going to pass the mic over to you and uh, talk a little bit about what your background is. In, in it started in about 2015 when I started preparing and researching for the bicentennial of the city. And as a year went by and then another year went by, I'd see little breadcrumbs here and there on the trail. This woman did this. This woman was important because of that. I didn't have time to focus it on, focus on it for, because the bicentennial was right in front of me. But I stopped and thought after the bicentennial, wait a minute, these are all white men. Did they drop like golf balls from the sky? They just were, who was here besides them? doing a lot of other things, and that's when I started looking into it and picking up those breadcrumbs, and um, and I think that's when I got that calling. That's a strong uh, feeling, you know, where <laughs> it really is. It's a calling. I mean, we both do not do this for money, and uh, we do it for the pure love and uh, the what we see as importance of, of telling these people stories. They did not have the, the opportunity to tell them themselves, and, and now through technology, thank God, if we can uh, find these stories and, and and share them with the world through social media, at least. I mean, it's the bare minimum we could do is, you know, social media. But you even have a more active uh, opportunity to do it through the fact that you work in the mayor's office and the fact that you have the connections to to steer the direction behind the scenes towards people like Lois Weber, who just got a... Uh, historical marker and, and to realize the importance of someone like that in Pittsburgh and uh, to, to realize someone, a prime example is Mary Patterson Irwin, uh, you know, which if you look in the old city directories is 
not even listed. <laughs> and, uh, you know, her husband or her brother or whoever, you know, someone with a, a male name is listed in there. Meanwhile, she was the one behind the, the scenes from the very get-go. And um, you've been a champion of her and, and have even tracked down her descendants, uh, which is you know, incredible, just to even get an idea of who this person looked like, just to get a kind of idea in your mind. It's like, well, did her eyes look like this? You know, what did her nose look like? You know, like from that kind of detail, bring this person back to life. You know, like, like I always say on uh, um, many speeches I give or anything, you know, you die two deaths. You know, one is your, when you die, the second is the last time someone speaks your name. And, and our job, for some reason, <laughs> our unpaid job is to share these people's stories uh, from, uh, you know, to, to, to save these stories from completely disappearing from time. So why, why don't you tell me a little bit about Mary Patterson Irwin and then also how that led you into what you're doing now. Uh, Mary Pattinson Irwin was one of those breadcrumbs I found her during the bicentennial research I was doing. She came to Pittsburgh with her husband, who they came from Northern Ireland. He had fought in um, the, in the Revolutionary War on our side. He was badly wounded at Paoli, Pennsylvania, at that battle there. And he brought her here because the government was giving them land. They didn't have money to pay the veterans of the Revolutionary War. They gave them land here. And she took one look at the three rivers and she said, forget the farming, we're going to make rope. There's going to be boats here, wagons, uh, mule trains, whatever. These people need rope. That's what we're going to do. So they incorporated, incorporated as John Irwin and wife, which was pretty outrageous because they didn't even mention women in those days in any capacity. So this was, I think, a testament to their love. I'm a romantic. I'm going to just say that, that he loved and respected her and vice versa. Ditto. Uh, he was so badly wounded and couldn't recuperate from all the uh, wounds he had. So she did the everyday work, uh, hiring, firing, ordering, selling. Everything was on her shoulders. And finally, um, they had four children. He grew progressively more sick, and he died, leaving her with four kids under the age of 12, 5,000 miles away from home, from everybody she knew, with this business employing about 50 men at a time when the city's population was at around 1,200, 1,500. So that's a sizable chunk of the population. They had families themselves, spouses, etc. cetera. Uh, so she was the first industrialist in this city. She was actually listed in the business directory when Lewis and Clark were outfitting their operation here in Pittsburgh. The only rope maker listed in the directory. So I don't have any proof because those receipts are all lost for some reason. Uh, all the receipts of purchase for the Lewis and Clark expedition. But I think she made the rope. If we could ever find those, <laughs> somebody give me a call. <laughs> um, and, but we do know that Commodore Perry, when he was preparing to go battle the British in Lake Erie, found Mary at her rope walk. This rope walk was along the Allegheny River, and he asked her to make the rope for his for his battle for his navy she was ready to retire but she said she would do it she made the rope oversaw the production of it and the packing of it and of course he won the battle and the british went home finally <laughs> but they're back with their tourist dollars somewhat well 
Barry is a, a perfect example of someone who was so important behind the scenes in early Pittsburgh history. Um, and her example is not, I mean, she's just one example. I mean, of the, who know, I mean, figure of every married man, you know, has got a woman there and, and I, I assume they weren't all at home cooking and they were doing other things. And, uh, Mary is that brief, uh, that tiny glimpse uh, of what, um, it, you know, if you, who knows what the situation was or, or how she became so successful at doing what she did other than just being the best at doing it and, and uh, have that fortitude to continue regardless of being a man or a woman, you know, she decided to continue the business and do it well. And, um, we'll jump ahead now. So years go on in Pittsburgh history where, uh, behind the scenes, the stuff is always cooking, but then people started emerging from that background and trying to make a voice for themselves or give it a voice for other women. Uh, and that really had to do with after the civil war, uh, the right to vote. And uh, we're coming up on the 100th anniversary of women's suffrage movement and, uh, and the right to earn the right to vote, uh, which is an important aspect of all culture. I mean, if you didn't denied the right to vote, you're technically, why be a citizen? you know, of a, of an area. I mean, this goes for the evolution of voting. First, you had to be a white man, you know, then you had to own land and you couldn't vote. Even if you had, if you had no land, you just worked on a farm. You were not allowed to vote even as a white man. So, um, it evolved and it can just you know, pretty much continuing involved. You know, criminals are not allowed to vote still. Well, they're citizens, are they not? So uh, there's, there's still a suffrage movement to, to, to happen. You know, it's not all complete. And, uh, of course, there's so many things behind the scenes going on, and, and politics uh, is behind that. But tell me a little bit about Pittsburgh's involvement in the suffrage movement and kind of some of these forgotten heroes that came out of that movement. I'd love to do that. Thank you for the opportunity. There are uh, a lot of um, – I th- first of all, there's general ignorance about the women of Pittsburgh and what they did uh, to get the vote in Pennsylvania to get it ratified. And Philadelphia has a very big, strong voice, so we often hear everything happened there. And it surely did not. There was a woman in Pittsburgh right before we got the right to vote. Her name was Jenny Rossing. She was a strategist, a very brilliant woman, and just tireless. She came up with this whole strategy of going out into the communities, every little two-horse town in Pennsylvania, training women there to go and preach about women's vote, and also getting the men on board with this because they had to rely on men to vote for it, to get it. Uh, And that coalesced into what's called the Pittsburgh Plan, it was eventually adopted across the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, and all the little county offices started using it and just following its tenets. And then, little by little, nationwide um, adoption of this Pittsburgh plan in other states. So it was a genius stroke. And part of that plan included getting a casting of the bell, the Liberty Bell in Philadelphia and calling it the Justice Bell. It was huge, a ton, and uh, getting a 1915 Ford truck. And these women got in that truck and drove across Pennsylvania, stopping at every place. There was a farm. There was a a stand selling corn in the summer. They didn't care. They'd stop and talk about women's votes. 
And, um, of course, they went to the big cities, Pittsburgh and Philly, Harrisburg, etc. They would get flat tires. You can imagine. You know what those trucks looked like in 1915. Everywhere they went, they got written up in the paper. They would make sure that their offices would send out a beautifully written bulletin to all the media, 500 newspapers across the country of every week of what they were doing, every step of the way. So when I'm researching all these newspapers, they all have the same article. The women wrote, well... And boom, the guys would pick it up and put it in the papers. Um, they also were very innovative constantly because they had little cash but and they had a big message to get out to a bigger population. The World Series, 1915. The way they'd get the word out on the scores was the newspapers would get it over the teletype or the telephone and they would write it up on big pieces of paper, put it in the newspaper's uh, sidewalk-level windows. Things got so heated during that World Series that mobs would form out in front of the newspaper offices. And the Pittsburgh City Council got fed up because they had complaints that people couldn't get through the sidewalks. They said, no, you can't do that anymore. So the women, Eliza and Lucy Kennedy, two, they were also really uh, gay crashers, barn burners. They went to the guy who owns a Jenkins Arcade and said, listen, Put a little stand up there for us. We'll start giving out the scores. We'll get runners. Our women will go running to the newspaper offices, get those scores, bring them back, and we'll announce them. And the guy said, that's a great idea. Get people in here. Well, yeah. What did they do during the breaks between the scores? They talked about women getting the right to vote. And that that's just another innovation. They would also give out flower seeds wherever they went. Yellow flowers. Yellow was the color of suffrage. Little by little... All the legislators in Harrisburg who were already being lobbied by women, they, the suffragists would be there all the time. But now they're going home for their vacations or whatever. And as they're driving or riding a horse, whatever they were doing, they would start to see little gardens, yellow gardens popping up. And they knew full well what yellow meant. And more and more gardens started popping up. So this is a way to get the message out over a sustained period of time and in a larger and larger uh, number of yards so they knew the movement was growing those are just a few things and um, so what do you think drove these women to start doing that in the first place this was a very exciting time for women right after the civil war during the civil war a number of things happened telegraph was invented um just like with world war one and world war two really familiar that workplaces the men have gone so women were going in to fill the uh, gaps Women started getting into newspapers and started figuring out clever ways to not just do the society columns. You got Nellie Bly. I think a lot of people have heard of her. But at the same time as she was uh, writing, we had more female reporters in Pittsburgh newspapers than in all the New York City newspapers. Wow. That's, that's how many women were just going into that field like gangbusters. And Telegraph was invented. Well, who did they find was the better, more trustworthy, quicker, and more accurate employee? Young men or young women? Women. They were better. So the telegraph office started getting women in there to manage. For the first time, they were put in managerial positions. They managed crews of five women, ten women. In fact, during the Johnstown flood, there was a little office up there in Johnstown. It was all an office of women. Hetty Ogle was the manager, a woman named Hetty. 
and she could see the water, the rain falling, not rain, but the water coming down from above. Uh, and as she saw it growing and growing and people leaving uh, the home, she saw the streets getting full of people coming down the hill. She stayed at the station, kept sending out messages to all the towns below, including Pittsburgh. It's getting deeper. It's getting more. It's coming down stronger and in bigger gales. And at 3 p.m. that day, she said, this is going to be my last message. And I want to let you know the water is at such and such a level. And that was it. She knew it was done. And all the women stayed with her. An incredible hero like that because you don't you don't hear those stories. You know, you don't. Um, well, if, I mean, I've heard that story, but I didn't know it was. I just, they they just pass over it in the documentaries. They say, you know, uh, telegraphs were being sent regularly, and then around 3 p.m. they stopped. And then they move on to the next thing. But that that was a person, and that was actually a woman and women all together. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, the the fact that people just glance over it, or it just was not really brought up, not re- almost until now, <laughs> and uh, and that's what's so fascinating about you, Gloria, is that uh, you know you're you're finding these people who have just as important, if not much more important. Uh, tale to be told and uh, tell us about another one of your uh, discoveries yeah the thing about Hetty I just want to mention is they had the water had started filling up the telegraph office so the first floor was flooded the women all agreed with Hetty they followed her lead and went to the second floor because she said we have to keep sending the messages so all hope was really gone that water had grown up to, I don't know, how many feet is the floor? It was incredible. Uh, As far as uh, getting back to suffrage, as I said, women had to rely on men to vote. Well, black men could vote. And admittedly, the white women that were uh, at the forefront that we imagine always as at the forefront of the suffrage movement were probably not the best ambassadors to win over the black vote. Well, Happily for everyone, there were many African-American women at the time who, coming out of that uh, abolitionist movement, they were also now gung-ho on getting the vote for women. The men had already gotten the vote, and they wanted to get the vote for women. They had the skills. They had the contacts and uh, the credibility. So we had women like Daisy Lampkin. We had women like Grace Lowndes. We had, and people might be vaguely familiar with their names, but there were so many more. The Ritt sisters, their family was a frequent meeting place because you figure, where, how did they get the means out? If the white women had few funds, I'm sorry, the black community had even fewer to rent big halls and do big events. So these would be done at homes. A lot of the times they would take a street corner after work as people are coming off the streetcar or walking home, they'd just put a soapbox out there and start talking about suffrage, and soon they'd have crowds gathered around them. Uh, And one of the things that's interesting is recently we've heard a lot about how uh, African-American women and the white women were very separate during the whole suffrage movement. And in other cities, in their big events, the white women either would say to the black women, no, you cannot be in this parade, or you have to be way at the back of the parade, something like that. And in Pittsburgh, in 1914, we had a big suffrage parade. And I'm looking at the old newspaper clippings and seeing that the African-American women were on the committee, the planet. 
and they were in the parade lineup right in the center of the parade. So it's kind of a different story. I don't know why I haven't gotten to that yet. I haven't found that the key to that mystery, but it's kind of cool. I mean, it's uh, it's incredible how a an idea like voting uh, could bring people together, uh, regardless of um, you know of a race or and 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 just how you could work on a single subject and not make it about black and white thing, you know. And, and uh, I find that incredible that they, they could work together because they they knew the common goal. Everybody knows the common goal. <laughs> it's just working together to achieve that. Uh, they did that first now in um what do you think it is about pittsburgh uh specifically that really helped with this whole movement that was started to go across the country and 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 why why did it happen in pittsburgh and not ohio or new york or you know how, how did these people uh choose this area to as a kind of jumping off point well, suffrage was happening everywhere. It was happening in different uh, ways everywhere. Uh, this was our particular way. It was a more, I want to say, inclusive um, kind of methodology that went by here. And as opposed to what Philadelphia was promoting, which was more radical type of uh, outreach and radical activity, our our people over here, Rossing and the Eliza and Lucy Kennedy and stuff, they said, no, that's not going to play in Pittsburgh. And that's sure not going to play in Butler and in all these little, uh, you know, Sayre uh, up there, Northeastern PA and these places. We know how to do it, and we're going to put it together so that it works. And they did. Um, it was very attractive. People were falling over each other to get to that rally or that farmland where the truck had stopped. Um, why? Our our women seem to get along better across color lines. I have only one theory. I know that um, one of the Ritz sisters and Grace Lowndes were both master tailors, fashion designers, and they worked for very wealthy women in Pittsburgh. These very wealthy women, like Pitcairn, Mrs. Pitcairn, were also arch suffragists. So I'm thinking somehow there might have been some sort of a familiarity, a comfort level with each other that that made this possible, this this working together. But I don't have any proof of that. My, uh, one of my favorite uh, things that's out there in the Pittsburgh archives is the suffrage cookbook and uh, and how they kind of snuck messages in there. You know, well, here's all to bo- bake a loaf of bread and here's all to vote. And, you know, uh, I found that pretty incredible. So uh Tell me about some other people you think uh, deserve mention in uh, Pittsburgh female history. Miss Meeks Morris, she organized the shirtwaist ball. I'm glad you mentioned the um, cookbook. The shirtwaist ball was another thing. Shirtwaist was an item of clothing from that era. Uh, They made them in the Triangle Factory, which caught on fire in New York City. It was a shirtwaist factory. Uh, so they challenged every woman that could sew to make a shirtwaist of their own, be creative. She rented out all of Motor Square Garden in East Liberty, and they had a party there. And they had a party with tickets that were cheap enough for the bricklayer and the laundress to afford a ticket, as well as for Mr. Carnegie to buy, you know, a hundred tickets. So if you look at the newspaper articles from those days, from that event, 
they say we've never seen a party like this because the maid is there eating cookies next to you know the titan of industry it was quite an event and all these young women eagerly came with their fashionable shirtwaists that they had spent the last uh, few weeks decorating and it was quite a cool thing so meeks morris um what was the general opinion for the women, the, the wives of Carnegie, of Frick, of the big the big ones, right? Uh, what was their general? Because I, from what I read and see, generally they're not really in favor of suffrage or having the right to do anything. <laughs> so, as a woman, it seems because there was just as much suffrage movement going on, there was just as much anti-suffrage from women. So, uh, like, what was the background behind that? I don't get a sense that it was as much. There were antis, and many of them were very wealthy, I'm sad to say. Um, but there were very wealthy, like Pitcairn, Bakewell. Mary Bakewell was a big pro-suffrage uh, woman, uh, and she was with the glass factory. They were very wealthy. So the antis, I don't know, even within the same family, you might find some pro and anti-women. Uh, I know that Mary Irwin, the rope maker, her great-great-granddaughters were suffragists, and I love that. I just love how, how that happened. Uh, and they were very, very wealthy. They, they built many of the homes on what they call Millionaire's Row on the north side, uh, which are homes that are in a sort of a square rectangle up there uh, co configuration, and in the middle of it runs a little alley called Ropeway. That's where they had the rope works, the last location of their rope works where they made it. Fascinating. So, Gloria, you're you're doing a fantastic job. You know, um, there's no one in my mind that deserves a day of your own <laughs> than you. Uh, and, and and what you've done for not only the bicentennial, but for finding these people's stories and bringing them to light um, in a way that is uniquely you. I mean, like it's one thing for me to sit around and tell you about African Americans or women or any Native Americans or anything. But you, you have such a passion behind what you do, uh, speaking for women, you know, and, and uh, generations, you know, will come to to know of you and your what you've been doing for the city and, and for the women's history of the city that uh, I don't think has ever been done before. <laughs> I've certain, certainly, and we've seen in most many books, uh, I don't think there's that much uh, comprehensive or a champion for women in the city of Pittsburgh other than you. And, and I'm uh, proud to call you my friend. Thank you, John. I wanted to mention also uh, a couple other things just came to mind. Edna Scheuer, she was a big suffragist, a young woman, very vivacious, a lot of energy. Scheuer Books was a bookstore until a few years ago here in Squirrel Hill. Um, so the family was well known. It's uh, been all around. They live all over the Pittsburgh area. She was gay. She was a young lesbian woman. Met another woman, fell in love. They went to Connecticut. Her her love's home was in Connecticut. There, they lived together all their lives. They ran for school board together. They won. And that leads us to the, the phase now. Now women are starting to run in greater numbers for office than ever before. So I think that's where I want to keep my eyes, anyway, on the future. So once again, the Gloria, uh, I want to thank you. Uh, for taking the time to talk to us about uh, women's history and um, and understand that it is an important thing that you're doing. It's not just some kind of shot in the dark 
you know, hey, here's a story about this person or that person. These people mattered, you know. We and just like we were saying earlier about how you die two deaths, you know, and, and that second one continuing their name and, and realizing that's that's what the job that's that's the point that's the goal of life that's the meaning of life, right? It's to have a purpose or some kind of mention or something. Otherwise, you might as well have never existed in the first place. And, and, and just to give them the five minutes, you know, to do that old Andy Warhol saying, you know, everyone gets their fifteen minutes of fame. Well, you know, we try to do that posthumously, right, and make sure that these people who have disappeared 150, 200 years ago get their little 15 minutes of fame because we all deserve it. And and, uh, and these people are are champions, you know, of our history, and, and they're the forgotten people behind the scenes. And it's a shame that they're behind the scenes, but thank to you, uh, thanks to you, the, you know, they're starting to come out. And uh, you're not alone, of course, and there's many people now you know, in the in just in the newspaper business alone, who um, who are really starting to come out, really starting to show appreciation for all these these hidden figures and these hidden uh, stories of the past, and uh, and the importance of female history. We wouldn't be here without them, <laughs> right? So none of us. And uh, so that goes to show you just how important it really is. But uh, thank you, Gloria. And uh, if you'd like to do the honors with me, we'll end the episode <laughs> with. That's it for a bit.